The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? Did you know that the con and con artist is actually short for confidence? So it's confidence artist or confidence man as they were first known. Yeah, I actually did, but I I never understood why. Well, the confidence part actually comes from one con man in particular. His name was William Thompson, and he was the very first person to be called a confidence man. So he was this swindler in old New York, and one day in 1848, he hit upon a new type of scam that quickly became his go-to. He would dress in his best clothes and politely approach other well-to-do-looking gentlemen on the street – Then he would strike up conversations with the strangers and feed them some sort of story about desperately needing a pocket watch for the day. (laughs) A pocket watch. Finally, he would ask, have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? (laughs) What a line. And it's uh, it's hard to believe anyone fell for that. Yeah, I might try it out. But, but, you know, people (laughs) did fall for it. And Thompson walked off with hundreds of fancy watches. So many that newspapers began reporting about this confidence man who plagued the city's streets. It's pretty crazy. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into the fascinating history of con artists and try to understand a little bit about why everyone has a soft spot for them. So let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And before we dive into today's big topic, we've got something fun to announce. After hearing from so many of you in early contests and from each episode, we've realized something. You listeners are some smart people, and you have some really interesting facts to share. And we need to make it even easier for you to share those facts with us. That's right. We know how difficult it can be when you've got something super interesting to say and you don't have anyone to share it with, and it makes us sad to even think about. So we're here for you. And we're excited to announce the creation of a fact hotline. You heard him right, folks. A fact hotline. (laughs) All you have to do is dial 1-844-PT-GENIUS. That's 1-844-784-3648. And, of course, there's a stray seven at the end. We wanted to say genius instead of genia. But So you can call us anytime. If you have super interesting fact to share about any topic, today we'll be talking about con artists. So you could tell us what we may have forgotten to mention. And they can call, what, it's 24 hours a day, right? 24 hours. It's like 4 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. You can call then, yeah. Maybe <laughs> even 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Could you call them? Yes. You can. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we want to hear from you. Let us know what we've forgotten in the episode you're about to hear or any other episode. And of course, when we hear facts that we really, really love, we're pretty generous with our T-shirts, right? That's mm-hmm. what we're giving away for those that uh, submit facts that we use. Yeah, we'll Pony Express you a T-shirt. So send us some facts. All right. Can't wait to hear those again one more time. That is 1-844-PT-GENIUS. All right, so let's get started. On today's show, we're talking about con artists, those enterprising flim-flammers of the world who've made (laughs) lifelong careers out of scamming the public. Now, we're going to try to pinpoint the golden age of con men and see if we can figure out how to avoid being duped ourselves. 
We'll also dig into the psychology of con artists to see how they manage to win a target's trust and even sometimes their hearts. Yeah, and that might sound ridiculous at first, like this idea that con men win people's hearts. But the more we looked into the topic, the more convinced I became that a lot of us have a big soft spot for con artists. I mean, first of all, which other class of criminals do we regularly describe as artists, right? Like, that's a pretty big compliment for someone who's trying to rip you off. Yeah, so we'll check out what's going on there. And of course, we'll also take some time for a couple absurd quizzes along the way. Want to give the rundown of who's joining us today, Mango? Yeah, sure. So today we're talking to Maria Konakova, a journalist and psychologist. She's also the best-selling author of The Confidence Game. Maria spent years exploring the ins and outs of famous cons for her book, including why they work and why we keep falling for them. And uh, so we're going to have her on the program. We're also going to be talking to Patrick Hoffman, this incredible crime novelist who's also a licensed private investigator. You know, before doing our research for this episode, I actually didn't know that con artist was short for confidence artist. And before the public upgraded them to artist status, they were simply known as confidence men. What I really like about the story of William Thompson is how well it sets up everything you really need to know about con artists and why we admire them. So think about how they can persuade all sorts of different people into giving up everything from like a watch to their life savings. And that's all just using their words and charm. Like they're almost improv actors with like looser morals. Yeah. And while the end result is deplorable, of course, the process itself, I mean, it takes real talent to pull this off. Definitely. So con men are incredibly perceptive, which helps them read people quickly in order to come up with just the right story to like hook a particular person. Which is why, in addition to thinking of them as, like, skilled artists, many researchers also consider them uh, really good psychologists. And so you can think about it. They never actually steal something from you directly. Most of the time, they're manipulating you into, like, handing over what you have. Right. And that's exactly what we see with Thompson. I mean, his question, have you confidence in me, is really targeting the stranger's sense of pride or their civility. I mean, he's basically asking are you truly a proper gentleman, as your appearance suggests? Are you the type of person who assumes the worst of their fellow man? <laughs> and it works. I mean, most people hate disappointing others, especially if doing so makes them seem greedy or distrustful. So we all feel that urge to save face, even with a total stranger. Well, and the other thing that we really love is a bargain. And con artists are very well aware of this. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is George C. Parker. This was the guy you may remember that sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week for decades. <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> yeah. So here's here's what Parker did. So shortly after the bridge was completed in 1883, he decided on a whim to try and sell the bridge to unsuspecting tourists and immigrants. These were folks who were new to the city or maybe even the country, but they'd heard about what amazing opportunities were available here. So when Parker approached them with this deal of a lifetime, the victims assumed they just stumbled into one of these lucky breaks they'd heard so much about. But still, I mean, like buying the Brooklyn Bridge, like that seems like such a tough thing to sell. Yeah, but he managed to do it again and again. This is how good he was at this. And <laughs> sometimes for as much as $50,000. So his routine was to introduce himself to a mark, as he called them, and as the owner of the bridge and then offer them a job running the toll booth he was about to build on it. From there, he would play up the fact that he was really more of a builder than a businessman and that he'd be much happier to leave the toll taking to somebody else. <laughs> and then he'd just move on to his next construction project. If only he could find an investor to take the Brooklyn Bridge off his hands. <laughs> Which is so devious. I know. And some victims didn't even realize they'd been had until months later. Some continued paying the bridge in monthly installments. <laughs> I love that when I read about this. <laughs> only to learn the truth from police after they were trying to construct toll booths on the bridge that they supposedly owned. So obviously this went on for a long time. But like how many years was he selling the bridge for? You're not going to believe this. So Peter ran these landmark selling scams like this from – I think it was the 1880s all the way until 1928. We're talking almost 50 years when he was finally <laughs> arrested and then he was sentenced to life in Sing Sing prison. And although his specialty was selling the Brooklyn Bridge, he dabbled a little in selling other New York City landmarks like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I think he tried to sell the Statue of Liberty a few times, even Grant's tomb, which he sold while <laughs> posing as the general's grandson. This guy's crazy, but it was so good at this. I love it, but it really makes me wonder, like, who is falling for these schemes? It sounds like these marks were pretty naive. 
but also like bumping into the owner of like a world famous museum and then buying it off him for like a pittance that that just sounds so dumb <laughs> all right well i i do think we have to be a little bit careful here but most experts agree that what makes the perfect mark really doesn't have anything to do with how intelligent or wealthy or gullible you are so instead psychologists say that it's where you are at a certain point in your life that makes you more emotionally susceptible to cons so you know someone who's going through a transition in life whether it might be something Good. Let's say you've gotten a job promotion or you've just had a child born or on the other end, something negative that's happened. If you've experienced the death or maybe a recent divorce, I mean, these are the people that are more likely to latch on to an opportunity that would otherwise seem too good to be true. Which is interesting. I mean, in Parker's case, it seems like he was targeting immigrants because he sensed their emotional vulnerability and starting over in a new country. But I always assumed con artists picked their marks based on, like, how people were dressed or how they carried themselves. Like, the way Thompson always went after these genteel-looking strangers for his watch scam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think appearance and body language definitely play a part, but it doesn't seem like the deciding factor. Hmm. So, for instance, Parker adjusted the amounts he would accept for the Brooklyn Bridge based on how wealthy a particular mark looked. The most he got from a single mark was, of course, that $50,000 that we mentioned earlier. But he also sold the bridge for lower amounts. You know, some people got a real discount, like <laughs> $500 or even 50 bucks. They got to what? buy the entire Brooklyn Bridge for 50 bucks. I mean, so cheap. <laughs> I might take that chance. So he would choose his victims based on, you know, what he spotted. If he saw these telltale signs that their lives were in upheaval, but other factors still inform the specifics of how everything played out. So I guess that's the beauty of selling something you don't actually own, right? Because any price can be the right one. That's right. But what strikes me is how much effort and adaptability go into these cons. Like, is it wrong that I find all of this kind of uh, impressive? Well, you know, right or wrong, you wouldn't be alone (laughs) in that kind of feeling. So when Parker went to prison, he was treated like a celebrity, not only by his fellow inmates, but even by the guards that were there. I mean, everyone loved hearing about his exploits and how he was able to sell such a crazy premise over and over again. Which actually backs up a study I came across in Scientific American that suggests we view unethical behavior less harshly if it also happens to be creative. So, for example, you tend to disapprove more strongly of someone who robs a man at gunpoint than someone who swindles money from them through this sort of like creative method. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like you feel bad for being duped, but you also have to applaud the ingenuity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Even though the guards at Sing Sing believed Parker had behaved unethically, they really couldn't help but admire his creativity and boldness that he displayed through all of these crimes he was committing. Exactly. And while that kind of thinking is apparently pretty common, it's also somewhat worrisome for society. Well, why would you say that? Well, so Francisco Gino, one of the researchers who worked on the study, put it this way. Quote, it seems that people view creativity as a positive, valuable trait that provides creative cheaters with a halo that makes their transgressions more palatable and more socially contagious. So because the creativity of a con is valued and appreciated by the public, we're actually more likely to imitate that kind of behavior. Yeah, I mean, I I can see the danger there. And it's certainly worth reminding ourselves that we are talking about ruthless people. I mean, these are ones who are knowingly wreaking havoc on others' lives for their own financial gain. But while we can do our best to avoid outright celebrating con artists, I really doubt we'll ever be able to avoid admiring them at least a little. Totally. And that's something our author Maria Konnikova touches on in her work. In an interview with The Guardian, she said, quote, Of course you have a grudging admiration for them because they're really, really good at what they do. The name con artist really does capture it. They're artists, and I have an admiration for all artists. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, now seems like the perfect time to check in with Maria and get the lowdown on the works of some of her all-time favorite con artists. What do you say, Mango? I'm all for it. So our guest today has been studying con artists for years. She's the author of Mastermind and The Confidence Game and the host and creator of a terrific podcast from Panoply called The Grift. And I am addicted to this show. I've listened to, I think, six of the episodes now and plan to listen to the others. But uh, Maria Konnikova, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, you know, I, as I was saying, I've been listening to the show, and it, it's really, really interesting. And it's 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 fun to kind of follow these common characteristics. Not Not that every con artist is the same. So I think one thing that, people make the mistake of thinking is that, you know, con artists are basically people who take advantage of other people, of other human beings. That's the mindset of a non-con artist. 
Con artists don't think of their victims as humans, really. So there's even a term in con artist parlance. It's called the mark. So who is your target? It's a mark. Because as soon as you feel any sort of real human attachment, then you start feeling guilty. You start having pangs about kind of what you're doing to this person. You start thinking about emotional consequences. And then you're a really crappy con artist because you're not able to take advantage of this person. And you're not going to be able to keep doing this because your conscience is going to catch up with you. In fact, there was one hilarious, well, I thought it was a pretty funny story that I came across when I was doing research. There's a very common scam, the IRS scam, where you get a phone call. Someone says, hi, we're from the IRS. We... Uh, we found that you didn't pay enough taxes. You owe, you know, two thousand dollars or whatever it is plus this fee. If you don't pay it right now, um, you're going to have to go to jail, and all these bad things are going to happen. And people get really scared because people are scared of the IRS. They're scared of taxes, um, and oftentimes they'll panic um, and they'll end up giving money to the con artist. This particular time, this guy calls and starts with the usual spiel. You know, you owe a lot of money on back taxes. The woman he's calling starts bawling. I mean, this woman gets hysterical. She said, I don't know what, I, what I'm going to do. I'm pregnant. You know, we own a store that we can't really keep our payments up on. You know, I'm about to have this baby. What am I going to And she just keeps going and going. And the con artist just says, lady, lady, stop. It's a con. Nicely done. <laughs> So that particular guy, probably not a very successful con artist. You know, when I think about psychics or fortune tellers, you know, I really had more this image that people go and they throw down $20 or $30 to have their fortune told. And, and then that's kind of the end of it. And yes, maybe they're ripped off, but I, I didn't really realize how deep some of these scams go. And you, you tell the story of this one poor college student who ended up getting scammed for you know, I think it was like $180,000 or something yeah. just extraordinary like that. But in that episode, you talk about the ability of a con artist to get uh, what you describe as a cold read on someone. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, it's a skill that I think psychics specifically really have down to just this science almost. And con artists have, have it too more broadly. And actually a lot of professions um, rely on it, you know, sales, marketing, the better you are in it, the better you are able to sell. Um, and the essence of it is being able to not only profile someone by looking at them, but get a lot of information from how they're dressed, what they sound like, what words they use, what they're saying, what their face is like, what their emotional bearing is. So, we, every single moment of every single day, we are just throwing off cues to people. So you walk into a psychic's room, right away, that's one huge clue. You are at a psychic's place. What kind of person goes to see a psychic? Why are you there? Maybe you're there on a lark and you think this is very funny, and yet you did it anyway. So, so that already says something. Um, maybe you look really upset. A lot of people go to psychics when they're upset. So right away we know that something happened in your life. What kind of a watch are you wearing? What kind of clothes are you wearing? What kind of bag are you carrying with you if you're a female? What are, you know, what questions did you ask the psychic? The psychic is also able to ask you some preliminary questions right away and phrase them in a way that makes you not realize you're giving off information. For instance, if I sit down at a psychic, um, a psychic can say, oh, um, you're not from around here, are you? Which seems like she is reading into my soul and knows that I somehow came from far away. But think about, think about how ambiguous that question is. And I'm going to give her a lot of information right away. And by the way, one thing that really helps psychics out is that we are a lot less unique than we like to think. Every single person likes to think that there's no one going through what I'm going through. No one knows what it's like to be me, and that's true as far as it goes. However, we all often fit into these overarching themes. You know, a lot of people who are going through similar emotional problems are actually more alike in a lot of surface ways, surface ways that make people then open up on those idiosyncrasies. And so as long as you can get those surface patterns down, people think that you understand them. 
people think that you know what it is like to be them, and people become much more willing to give you a lot of information that they wouldn't normally give out to a stranger. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very interesting. So one of the things you mentioned on your show is that uh, carnivals are our first interaction with con artists, and I kind of <laughs> love that idea. I'd never really thought about it that way. And, and could you could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, um, it was actually really. I was really upset to find it out because. I have such vivid, wonderful memories of going to my first carnival as a kid mm-hmm. and really, really wanting to, you know, win those games and win those stuffed animals. Um, and it turns out that there are quite literally con artists in carnivals because um, a lot of carnival games are crooked and a lot of carnivals are completely crooked. So basically, all of those games, whether it's, you know, trying to pass a circle over some bent metal thing without touching the metal or trying to get, you know, a ball into the jug, into the milk jug, or whatever it is, you know, there there are tons of these, um, that they're rigged. And so you can't win unless the person operating the game wants you to win. Um, And they do that to kind of vote people in and get more money. And the more expensive the game, the more likely it is to be rigged. And it's really, they do it in this really sophisticated way where they can unrig the game very quickly. So if they see that there's law enforcement, if they see that if anything seems suspicious, they'll press a lever, press a button, you know, turn something over, and all of a sudden the game is totally on the up and up, um, and no one can see that it was once upon a time rigged, which is very sneaky and prevents them from being caught. And on a broader basis, I think that even if a carnival isn't rigged, carnivals, magic shows, I mean, they're all based on deception. The good... The good news is that when you're going into a magic show, you want to be deceived. Mm-hmm. You're going for entertainment. And then in carnival, you're also going for entertainment. And if you go into, you know, the side shows, House of Horrors, House of Mirrors, all of those things, you know that there's going to be illusion and distortion involved. Um, and you willingly take part in that. And I think that we, we kind of love that as, as human beings. It's really fascinating to to suspend belief. I think it's why we love Hollywood and movies and all these things. And it's that instinct which then allows con artists to take advantage of us. Maria, I'm so glad that we conned you into uh, to being on our show today. I hope all of our <laughs> listeners will check out The Confidence Game as well as the uh, terrific podcast, The Grift. But Maria, thanks so much for being on Part-Time Genius. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about some of the most outlandish con jobs in history and the no-account scoundrels who managed to pull them off with style. So, Mango, we've already covered a couple of notable con men from the 19th and early 20th centuries. You know, there was one thing I noticed while doing the research for this show is just how many famous scams took place during that time period. And it kind of got me wondering, you know, when was the golden age of con men? 
And what were the conditions of that time that allowed them to thrive? Yeah, I'd say the late 1800s are probably the best contender for a golden age of conmen, at least here in the States. I read this interview on NPR with uh, Amy Redding, the author of a book on the history of con jobs. It's called The Mark Inside. And she says the 19th century was the perfect time for con artists because the world was both smaller and bigger at the same time. Wait, how, how does that work? Smaller <laughs> and bigger? <laughs> well, the U.S. was expanding west. So there was this age of exploration going on that had all kinds of people striking out for places where the rules of society weren't firmly established yet. And they also didn't have a real way to get in touch with the rest of civilization if they ran into trouble. In fact, Denver was kind of the perfect city for this. And, and why Denver? Well, to sharpers and conmen, the city was actually called the big store just because it was such an easy place to run cons. And in fact, there was a fixer in town, this guy named Lou Blonger, who owned a local saloon. Like he paid off the Denver sheriff and he had 500 conmen on his payroll. Basically, if you ran a con in town, you had to give him 50%. But in return, if you ever had a problem with the law, he'd make a phone call and settle it for you. He ran the town for like 40 years up until the 1920s. And as a result, all these amazing cons were invented in Denver. Wow. Lou really had it going there. <laughs> but you know, it, it wasn't just Denver, of course. Sure. I mean, the con business was bustling everywhere. And as Amy puts it, quote, it was easier for itinerant swindlers to move from town to town practicing the same small cons within a given region without getting caught. So pretty much it's the plot of the music, man. That's what I actually, what I was going to say. And, and, and I was reading about this one 1800s con artist who followed the exact plan to a T. It was this guy named Lamartine who traveled through Ohio in the spring of 1859, and he would pretend to attempt suicide in every town he stopped in. He worked out this whole routine where he would show up and book a hotel, he would look all depressed, and then he would call for a clergyman and point to an empty bottle of Loudon while lying <laughs> next to a suicide note. How terrible is that? Which sounds, I guess, convincing enough, but how did any of that line his pockets? Well, he figured that his sad plight would evoke pity from, you know, good Samaritans in town who happened to hear about him. And they would turn up at his bedside with gifts of cash to help raise his spirits what? and get him back on his feet. <laughs> So Lamartine, you know, he made his way all across Ohio like this. He might raise 30 or $40 per town and then he'd disappear again with a free pass on the railroad to commit suicide at some other place. <laughs> Which is unbelievable. So speaking of trains, one of my favorite con men is Elmer Mead. He's this legend and he ran this amazing con called the Magic Wallet, which we should talk about some other episode. But my favorite con that he came up with is the fixed foot race. And Basically, people used to bet on races at the time. So he searched like a nearby town for an upstanding rich man who also happened to be a gambler. And he'd lure them to another town on the promise that he had a sure bet on a foot race. So he'd give the gambler this tip and then find someone to bet against him. And we're talking massive amounts of money here, right? So he'd get a friend to put up like $50,000 betting against the rich guy's $10,000. And then the race would start. And inevitably, the rich guy would be winning by a long shot and he'd be delighted, right? I mean, his racer would be way out ahead and he'd just be thinking about all the money he was going to collect. And then suddenly the cops would bust in. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Meade would yell to all the gamblers to scramble. He'd run his rich friend to a train station, put him on a train and then make all these promises. <laughs> and sometimes he'd even telegraph him at the next station saying the cops were on the hunt and to keep going. <laughs> Then Meade, who had contracted with the racers, the gamblers, and the local cops to raid the place, he'd split that $10,000 amongst them, and he'd go from town to town doing this. Wow. I think, <laughs> what's amazing to me is how much work some of these scams take, you know? But, but, but I think we found another characteristic of con men that probably helps endear us to them, and that's that they're entrepreneurs. I mean, we appreciate that can-do spirit in America. Even apparently in situations like this when bending the rules to, to get the job done. Yeah. So, so Amy Redding actually has a great quote about common. Let, let me find it. She says, a con artist is like, quote, the bad boy cousin of the self-made man and a direct descendant of mythic antiheroes like cowboys or noir detectives who exploit the ragged edges of the modern world. So, I mean, just like cowboys or with detectives, we admire con artists because they represent this sort of lawless way of living that doesn't answer to any of the traditional authorities that sometimes, you know, make people feel small or powerless. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty interesting. And, and, and I guess con artists make sense as another kind of American archetype of the Old West. So you had cowboys or frontiersmen, 
you know, rail riding hobos and <laughs> especially when you look how far back they go in our nation's history and how prevalent they still are today. So I think one of the best examples of how intertwined con artistry is with the U.S. past and present is actually the Nigerian email scam. And I know if it's an email scam from Nigeria, how does it say anything about U.S. history? But that's the thing. Those emails are actually a modern version of a classic con that dates all the way back to the French Revolution. Well, and and to be clear, you're talking about those spam emails we see all the time about a Nigerian prince or something who's supposedly – has a huge fortune mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. willing to share it if you just provide a small upfront fee so <laughs> he can then safely move the funds out of his country. That's what you're talking about, right? Exactly. So, so they're sometimes called the 419 scams because that's the legal designation for fraud in Nigeria. But the truth is that advanced fee scams like this are way older than email and weren't originally connected to Nigeria or its princes. Well, you said they started with the, the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we see the first recognizable version of this con. The Boston Globe did this great report on the scam a few years back, and they broke it down like this, quote, A letter arrived describing an aristocrat in exile, say, the Marquis de Whomever, who in escaping from revolutionary violence had thrown a chest full of jewels into a lake. His faithful servant, now writing this heartfelt letter, had come back to retrieve it and unfortunately ended up in prison. With just a little help from you, a fellow Frenchman, to aid in the servant's bail or escape, you'd earn a portion of the loot. Yeah, that's, that is pretty much exactly the same as the Nigerian <laughs> Prince email. So when did the scam make its way stateside? So it caught on like wildfire about a century later during the Spanish-American War. The scam became known as the Spanish Prisoner Letter and was later modified for use all over the world. It only popped up in Nigeria in the 1980s when paper letters began circulating there, promising easy money from the nation's oil boom. Ah, and then then came the internet, of course, mm-hmm. which really just seems perfectly suited for a scam like this. I mean, not only do you save a bundle on postage, but then you're suddenly able to reach millions of people all over the globe. Yeah, there's no doubt technology has given the scam a boost, but I think there's a deeper reason it's managed to survive in different forms for so many hundreds of years. And it's that at its core, the scheme relies on people's willingness to become small-scale war profiteers, which is a pretty ugly side of humanity to prey on. Though it's probably the fact that it works so well that's uh, even more upsetting. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And it, it, it actually kind of gets me thinking, you know, maybe there's a little bit of con artist in all of us. Which is definitely something worth pondering. But before we get into that, how about we break for a quiz? So our next guest is a a private investigator. He's been a private investigator for over a decade now, but he's also a critically acclaimed author of The White Van and Every Man a Menace. And he's here to talk to us a little bit about being a PI and uh, many of the other things that we have to ask him. But Patrick Hoffman, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Awesome. (laughs) So Patrick, I understand that you uh, started out as a cab driver in San Francisco. I mean, how do you go from being a cab driver, making this leap to becoming a private investigator? Um, It's funny. I think cab driving is the perfect background to become a private investigator, actually, because you're, you're learning a city. You know, you go everywhere in the city. You meet every type of person in the cab. You learn how to talk to every type of society, and that, that helps a lot. When I first moved to San Francisco, I was very green coming out of college and, uh, uh, you know, not really used to dealing with some of the criminal elements. And then you drive a taxi for four four years in the night in San Francisco, and you get a little more street smart and ready to go talk to people about some of these criminal cases that I was working on. <laughs> that makes sense. So you did this amazing interview in GQ where you talked about sort of this relatively mundane thing where you go to find and ask someone a question, but then there are all these menacing things happening around you, like a guy wielding a wrench and like people pulling up and watching you from a car. And so I, I was curious, when do you know when to be scared? Well, I mean, I'm scared all the time. Every time I go to knock on someone's door, I'm oh, always no. a little bit nervous. <laughs> I'm just, I'm kind of shy to begin with, but. I don't know how you know. You just, you know, you get a feeling. It's kind of like uh, pornography. You know it when you see it. You know, you know when you're scared when you're scared. <laughs> but always in that particular instance, we had the, a uh, pit bull barking at me, and and uh, it was a known huge drug selling family in Oakland that I was talking to. So it was kind of in the back of my mind already. Also, I had, earlier in the day, I had been threatened to be killed already oh, once. Wow. So. 
That's, yeah. that's, that's really wild. Yeah. I, actually, you always imagine that private investigators just have no fear at all. Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear this. I mean, has there ever been a time or a case that you were working on where you really just almost said, you know what? I'm, I'm not cut out to do this. I can't do this work anymore. I mean, I often feel that way, actually. You know, it's a tough job. Um, but that case that you were talking about earlier was one case where I was feeling that way a little bit because it was a murder case. And it was a gang that um, had done, they had killed four people in one night uh, just for fun. It wasn't even a, a gang thing. It was, they were literally just driving around killing people for fun. Um, and I was looking for one of the guys in that case who, who hadn't been charged in the case. who was going around to all of his old family members and uh, knocking on the door and asking for him. And just by implication doing that, it's kind of suggesting that he uh, could be a snitch or something. So I remember driving across the Bay Bridge and thinking, man, this is, is this guy going to get tired of me looking for him? <laughs> so that was definitely one. And And what keeps you doing it? Um, well, I find the work really meaningful. You know, I think standing up to, to helping someone who's charged in a criminal case is uh, a great thing to do. Uh, you know, you have the whole government coming down on someone, and they can only rely on the lawyers and the investigators and the paralegals and the people trying to work for them against the, the power of the of the U.S. government or the state government. I think it's just a really noble thing to do. Which is awesome. And speaking of meaningful, we're going to um, give you a really meaningful quiz right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what quiz are we playing with Patrick today, Mango? It's uh, it's called Spot the Con because our show is all about con men and every answer has the word con in it. All right. Patrick, you ready to play? I think so. Okay. We got four <laughs> four questions for you. All right. Question number one. This state has a law that to be officially called a pickle, a brined cucumber must bounce. Also, its capital is Hartford. Name that con. Connecticut. Yes. <laughs> Way to enunciate. There we go. All right. Number two. Since 2010, this breakfast meet has had a legal church established in its name in Vegas with over 13,000 congregants. Also, strips of its star in a sandwich between lettuce and tomato. Can you name that con? Bacon? Yeah. You got it. All right. See, no, no need to be afraid of this quiz. All right. Question number three. When Wilt Chamberlain scored his 100-point game, he was wearing this classic sneaker brand. But you might recognize them by the Chuck Taylor patch on them. Can you name that con? Converse. You got it. Three for three. Let's see if you can go mm -hmm. for the perfect score. Number four. When JFK was stranded on the Solomon Islands, he wrote a message on the husk of one of these hairy, hard-shelled fruits and was rescued. Name that con. This is a hard one, by the way. It's hard to find the con in this one. Is that uh, coconut? Yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, uh, JFK actually kept his inscribed coconut on his desk as a paperweight. Wow. All right. Crazy. Well, how has Patrick done today, Mango? Well, Patrick went an incredible four for four, which means we'll be sending him home with a Hardy Boys tote bag. The best way to show the world you know who the Hardy Boys are. Terrific. Well, I hope all of our listeners will Yay. check out uh, <laughs> Every Man a Menace as well as the White Van. But, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, where today we're talking about some of the most notorious Bunko artists in the business. <laughs> so you're really having fun with all these colorful nicknames from common, like Bunko artists. I think you call them no-account scoundrels, flimflammers. Flimflammers. <laughs> I like that one. I mean, not only are con artists the most well-regarded of criminals, they're also the ones with the best nicknames. Actually, I looked into a few of my favorites to see where they came from. So let's see. There was uh, Bamboozler, which started out as a slang word for cheater in the 1700s. Might have been derived from the Scottish word for Bombay or Bombays, which means to perplex. Another good one is Bilker, which first used in the 1600s as a cribbage term for someone who spoiled <laughs> another person's score. You love your cribbage terms. Love my cribbage <laughs> references. And later came to be, you know, to mean defrauder. But the thesaurus is full of them. Swindler, fleecer, sharpie, shyster, smoothie, sly boots. <laughs> so there's actually one more I wouldn't mind talking about. Oh, yeah. What, what, what's that one? A snake oil salesman. Oh, yeah. Good. I don't know how I didn't think about that one. That <laughs> should have come up already. I know. So the terms kind of become synonymous with conmen, and it brings to mind ideas of like these old-timey traveling salesmen hawking fake cure-alls from a covered wagon or whatever. But in fact, if you look up snake oil in the OED, it's actually defined as a quack remedy or panacea. I don't get it. Why is that surprising? Right. So it's because snake oil in itself can actually be a legitimate treatment for some conditions. Okay. Well, forgive me if I'm a little skeptical about this, Mango, but this is an episode about cons after all. (laughs) Fair enough. But uh, this is actually the real deal. Like thousands of the Chinese railroad workers who immigrated to the U.S. during the late 1800s, they actually relied on snake oil to reduce inflammation in their joints after a long day on the job. It was this medical tradition that they brought over from their homeland, a bomb made from like the Chinese water snakes, omega-3 rich oils. And it was super effective for treating conditions like arthritis or bursitis. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, but wait, you're telling me that snake oil salesmen are somehow what victims of some long running smear campaign? <laughs> Absolutely not. They were total crooks. Yeah. But once word started getting out about this uh, Chinese snake oil, these enterprising American entrepreneurs or con men as you and I call them, started developing their own homegrown versions of the miracle drug. And the most famous of these was this salesman called Clark Stanley. Have you heard of him? No, I haven't. He's He was also called the Rattlesnake King. And he claimed to have found a way to put the oil from rattlesnakes to the same use as the water snakes. But Stanley's snake oil had two problems, right? So the first was that rattlesnake oil is way less effective for treating inflammation. It only has a third of the active compound of a uh, water snake oil. Oh, okay. All right. And, and you said there was a second problem? Yeah. So the second was that Stanley snake oil didn't have any snake oil. In oh, that, that's a big problem. <laughs> that's a bigger part of the problem. But uh, this uh, federal investigation in 1917 found out that his product was mostly made from mineral oil and uh, some mix of beef fat and red pepper and turpentine. Mm. But uh, once his secret was out, Stanley was out of the business and snake oil salesmen have forever been linked to that fraud. Okay. All right. And as you know, we've talked about con men as artists, actors, psychologists, storytellers, of course, not to mention criminals. But, mm-hmm. you know, that last story reminds me that a con man is fundamentally a salesman. I mean, their product is lousy or altogether <laughs> non-existent even. But because that's the case, con artists are actually some of the best salespeople ever. Yeah, and I think it's that tenacity and that idea of making it on the strength of your own wits that people find so appealing. Like, we all love an underdog, someone who's figured out this way to work the system to their own advantage. So in a way, we like hearing about con artists because – we get to live vicariously through them in these like larger than life stories of people who've gotten theirs one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Which brings me back again to something we touched on earlier. You know, at, at some level, are we all con artists? Because if we're responding to certain characteristics that typify con artists, maybe the same kind of duplicitous tendencies crop up in all of us, but, you know, just in a less concentrated form. Yeah. So that actually sounds a lot like something I read about in my research called microcons. And these are the little white lies we all tell on a daily basis. Like it might be an insincere compliment you give to a loved one or like an ignored text we make up an excuse for missing. 
we often stand to gain something from these fibs, whether it's avoiding unwanted confrontation or getting like a small reward of some kind. But does that mean we should all be lumped in with con men in the same shady category? Like it, it feels like a big leap. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I might be a little bit biased here, but I'm going to go ahead and say no <laughs> to that. But I do think you're right that micro cons are a thing we all do. But con artists really seem to be operating on a whole different level. I mean, there's there's a crazy amount of energy and thought that goes into being a con artist. I read this Economist article by uh, Alison Schrager, and she really nails that difference between con artists and the average person. She writes, It's an amazing paradox. A con man has incredible emotional insight, but without the burden of compassion. He must take an intense interest in other people, complete strangers, and work to understand them, yet remain detached and uninvested. That the plan is to cheat these people and ultimately confirm many of their fears cannot be of concern. Yeah, with without the burden of compassion, that that's an interesting way to put it. And, and it's that kind of effort and cold focus that I'm talking about. I mean, we, we aren't detached from the people we carry out our own microcons on. It's it's usually just the opposite of that. And you know, we aren't knowingly hurting folks either, which is probably the biggest thing that separates us from con artists. And also a reason maybe to rethink our love affair with the idea of them. You know, con artists actively seek to do harm to people and, and they know it. <laughs> Which is true. But uh, I think you should keep your wits about you for this next part because it's about time to jump into the part-time genius fact off. All right, I'll start us off. And we talked about George Parker and his selling the Brooklyn Bridge multiple times, but it turns out there was a con artist pulling a similar stunt in Paris. This was a guy named Victor Luswig in the early 1920s, and he decided to appoint himself the deputy director of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. <laughs> what a title. It sounds official to me. So he went around to scrap metal dealers telling them that the Eiffel Tower was going to be dismantled, and then he took bids on who was going to get the medal. And lots of people fell for this. In fact, the guy who ultimately won the bid, he was too embarrassed by the whole thing to report. <laughs> of course he was. So I want to do a full episode on female con artists down the line because there are some amazing stories. But one of my favorite characters is Sophie Lyons, who this writer J. Robert Nash calls America's first important con woman. She started as a prostitute and she married her way up like she married a bank robber. But uh, over the years, she managed to bilk over a million dollars out of people while outsmarting the police at every turn. Like she never got caught. But the thing I find most fascinating about her story when she retired in 1897, she started writing for the New York World and became the country's first society columnist. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Well, one of my favorite con artists is Princess Caribou from the island of Javasu. Back in the early 1800s, this woman began wandering the streets of Almondsbury, England. She'd be wearing all black and was clearly hungry and exhausted, and she was speaking a language no one could understand. So a wealthy couple takes her in, and they try to find somebody who can understand what she's saying. Well, in comes a Portuguese sailor who claimed to understand her and said she was, in fact, a princess. Now, the story goes that she was she was at sea, abducted by pirates, but managed to escape and found her way to shore. So Princess Caribou was treated like royalty or at least <laughs> like a celebrity. That is until she was eventually found out. So I've got one for you. Are you familiar with the nation of celestial space? I can't say that I am. <laughs> well, it's a real thing, or at least it was in the mind of this Chicago resident, Charles D. Mangan. So one night after pondering the ownership of outer space, he decided he'd claim all of outer space as part of the nation of celestial space, which he founded in 1949. But here's the weird part, right? Somehow after a lot of phone calls and a lot of harassing. He submitted his charter of Celestia to the county recorder of deeds, and it was actually accepted by the state of Illinois. And, of course, it never got any further than that because, like, despite his petitions to the U.N. and his appeal to secretaries of state, like, no one no one uh, answered his phone calls. seems impossible. <laughs> That's so crazy. All right. You're going to be shocked when I tell you this, but you, you know those signs you see all over the place. They're on telephone poles, highway medians. That say you can work from home and make tons of money. Mm -hmm. It it turns out those are a scam, Mango. I hate to tell you that. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. So usually what those scammers do is get you to pay some sort of a fee for a starter kit of some kind. And then the only way you can really make money 
is to convince your friends or other people you know to do the same thing. Uh, <laughs> so perhaps the greatest imposter of them all would be Ferdinand de Mara, who's often known as the great imposter. <laughs> in his 1982 obituary in the New York Times, and you're going to love this, they gave a rundown of many of the identities he'd taken on. The obit read, quote, At times in his life, Mr. Damara lived as a Trappist monk, a doctor of psychology, a dean of philosophy at a small college in Pennsylvania, a law student, a zoology graduate, a career researcher, a teacher at a junior college in Maine, a surgeon in the Royal Canadian Navy, an assistant warden at a Texas prison, and a teacher in a Maine village. That is impressive. (laughs) I know, but this is the best part, right? Like the identity that actually got him busted was the most impressive one. It was when he was a surgeon on the Royal Canadian Navy destroyer during the Korean War. Uh, He was a surgeon? (laughs) And after several wounded men were brought in from combat, it was on him to save them, right? And so the story goes, he had this photographic memory and he'd go into a back room, look at a medical book, come back, and then actually perform the life-saving surgery. No way. Yeah, he was apparently so successful that he was recognized as a hero, which actually blew his cover. So, uh, still, it's a pr- impressive run. Yeah, and that is crazy. But, but back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode... It's so impressive that you almost find yourself cheering the guy on. <laughs> totally. So I have to give it to you, Mango. You win the trophy this time. Thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.